The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Tanya Zuckerbrot. She's the author of The F-Factor Diet, Discover the Secret to Permanent Weight Loss. Uh, Tanya has an MS, an RD, she's a registered dietitian, nationally known, and the creator of the renowned F-Factor Diet, the only dietitian-created program for weight loss and optimal health that is based on fiber-rich nutrition. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Nice to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I have seen you on and heard you on many shows, but I have to say, having seen you, I don't know if it's on the Today Show, but you certainly look like you practice what you preach in terms of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do my best. Um, I think in, in, in areas um, of work where you're motivating clients, whether... Uh, you're an anesthetician or a trainer or a dietitian, it is important to practice what you preach. This way your clients know that the work is doable. Well, Tanya, you say, okay, you're emphasizing fiber consumption, and you say don't worry too much about the carbs or the fats or the calories. So explain that to us. Because, I mean, you, I do hear about, you know, fiber diets and you should eat a lot of fiber, but yours, there's somehow there's something different about... Yes, you, well, yeah. I, think, I think, you know, fiber, thankfully, has... Um, its reputation has improved somewhat since I first began with the program 15 years ago. And when people heard the word fiber, they only thought of, you know, prunes or metamucil and laxation, um, no one quite understood that fiber was strongly correlated with weight management. So what is fiber? Well, fiber is the indigestible part of the carbohydrate. Fiber has no calories, so it allows you to eat carbs without weight gain, which is a novel approach to this day and age when so many people that I run into are cutting out carbs in an attempt to lose weight um, unsuccessfully. So what, give us an example. What, what would those foods be, let's say, if we're following the diet specifically? Yeah, well, fiber is found in many delicious foods. Um, you know, more than, as I said, you know, people's perception of prunes and metamucil. Fiber is found in whole grains, uh, such as whole wheat pasta and brown rice. It's found in many delicious cereals. You know, Kellogg's makes uh, a bran buds. General Mills makes a fiber one. Um, fiber is found in fresh fruits and in fresh vegetables. Um, and in starchy vegetables such as sweet potatoes and corn. So there are so many um, naturally fiber-rich foods that exist that are not expensive, so F-Factor is not cost prohibitive. You can go to any local supermarket and get all the foods that you would need to follow F-Factor. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you that as the next question because I know you've been practicing in Manhattan for, what, 15 years. So I was yes. going to say, you know, is, is, is your diet just for the well-to-do or the rich and famous, or is it for all of us? And, and I think maybe you did answer the question. I mean, all these foods are inexpensive, and you can get them at your local grocery store. Yeah. 
Um, yes, we do have a private practice in Manhattan on 57th Street, and we do cater to a high-end clientele. You know, New Yorkers are notorious for working hard and playing hard, and that's why F-Factor, um, you know, works for them because our clients don't have to sit home with a frozen, you know, Jenny Craig dinner when they want to be out at Nobu or at some, you know, fancy Italian restaurant. It allows them to travel for business, go out for business cocktails, go to social functions. So one of the great things about F-Factor is that you don't have to sacrifice your quality of life in order to change your life. And as far as the price, um, you know, there are IC clients and I have associates, you know, who have a different price structure, you know, if people are interested in working with a dietitian and you don't have to live in New York because we Skype with our clients. So I actually have clients all over um, the world, but certainly all over the United States. But for those people who are looking for an inexpensive entry point into the brand, um, the book is available. And the book, for the most part, is around 12 to $14 on Amazon. Um, and as I said, the foods are inexpensive. So for less than $20, you can get started on F-Factor today. As I understand it, Megan Kelly is on the F-Factor diet? Yes. Um, she was very like, generous this week yeah. during, during <laughs> um, her interview with Michael Moore. And um, she shared her experience with F-Factor with her viewers. And, you know, people ask me, you know, why does it work for her? I'm like, once again, because people like Megan Kelly, you know, she juggles, um, like many of us, um, work and a family, and she wants to look and feel her best. And the beauty of F-Factor is, yes, um, the, you know, the, the, the weight loss which occurs is truly a byproduct because F-Factor is a program that began in a clinical setting. I originally was working... Um, with cardiovascular and diabetic patients at the onset of my career, I was not focused on weight loss at all. I was working purely from doctor referrals. And my job was to work as an extension of these medical teams to provide diets that would enhance these patients' clinical conditions, to lower cholesterol so they can get off of their statin drugs or to manage their sugars so they can get off of their oral insulins and, in theory, reverse type 2 diabetes. What I hadn't anticipated was all the fiber I was prescribing for the clinical benefits was resulting in these clients feeling so full that they were naturally eating less. And because we were working in an outpatient setting, these clients were still attending family gatherings and social functions and, of course, going to the office. Um, and people would say to them, you look great. What happened? And they'd say, oh, well, my cardiologist made me go to this woman to lower my cholesterol, and I lost 20 pounds in three months, and I've been dining out and drinking alcohol. So my phone started ringing with these clinical patients, friends and family members and colleagues saying, hey, I'm friends with Jane or friends with John. My sugars are fine and my cholesterol is fine. Can I get the weight loss part of what he or she did? And that really was the birth of F-Factor where this private practice that was initially in a clinical setting moved into the weight loss space. And the reason I share this with you and, and your listeners is because many diets are fad diets and they're based on a hot nutrient or you're going to cut something out, but no one really focuses on the health benefits. So, is eating this way while it's producing weight loss, is it lowering your cholesterol? Is it controlling your sugars? Is it reducing your risk factors for cancer? Will you live longer? And F-Factor is a scientifically proven program that, of course, our patients lose weight without hunger. But for me, the greatest value is the fact that we are establishing a pattern of eating that will allow them to live longer and not just increase you know, the, the years, you know, increase their chance of longevity, but more importantly, um, add a quality of life to those years. 
So it's looking good, feeling good. It encompasses all of those kinds of things. And I, I, if I, and I, I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but at least within the past couple of months, I guess, JAMA, the Journal of American Medi- Medical Association, and their recommendations for what we should eat. And it really does, as I was reading it, it seemed to fit very well into the F-factor diet. Yes, no, and, and I appreciate you bringing um, up that report. Um, additionally, in the past just even month, there have been published studies correlating a high-fiber diet with a reduced risk of breast cancer, a high-fiber diet with a reduced risk of lung cancer. So we're beginning to understand that fiber is, is, is this incredible, powerful nutrient that really can help people to get healthy. And when you think about so many other diets that focus on omission, cut out carbs, cut out alcohol, cut out sugar, um, F-factor allows you to focus on what you're adding back in. So right away, those feelings of deprivation denial aren't associated with your weight loss experience. But our clients, I believe, are so committed to the program because we're dealing with really smart people. And if you're bright, you recognize that if you're going to lose weight, you might as well do it in a way that's sustainable and that's going to improve your health. Why not maximize your efforts and, and, and receive you know, increased chances of longevity with what's really exciting is this weight loss without hunger. One does not have to preclude the other. So you have a very, in a good way, <clears throat> a very sophisticated clientele. Um, what, can we eat too much fiber? It's a great question, and I'm glad you raised it because, um, as I stated earlier, fiber is all natural. So unlike the days of Atkins where people worry about the amount of saturated fat, increases risk for cardiovascular disease, um, or other diets where there are unnatural ingredients or pills or powders and you have to worry about um, what long-term use will do, the only danger of fiber is if you eat so much and you forget to drink enough water, yes, you may get impacted. Um, Joanne Slavin, who is the preeminent fiber researcher in the country, um, she said that above 80 grams of fiber a day, um, the only other complication could be because fiber does increase um, evacuation, which we could talk about in a minute because there are so many positive aspects of that. But if you're going to the bathroom possibly too frequently, then you, you could... Uh, malabsorb some essential vitamins and nutrients. But she said 80 grams of fiber. And do you know what the average American gets in fiber per day? Well, I'll tell you. absolutely no idea. 9 to 11 grams of fiber. The American Dietetic Association recommends 35 grams of fiber a day, and we are are hitting a third of that. And part of the reason is that we are in a fiber deficit due to the fact we've refined all our foods. Whole potatoes have been turned into boxes of potato flakes, fresh fruit into sugary fruit juice. Um, You know, whole grains have been, you know, milled into white rice and white pasta that have no fiber. So most Americans are not eating a lot of fiber, and that's one of the reasons that we're hungry. It's one of the reasons we're overeating, and it's one of the reasons we've become so fat. But carbs are not the problem. And I remind clients, if you look at nations um, or cultures where they predominantly have a a carb-rich diet, such as in Italy where we know they eat a lot of pasta, or in France where we know they eat a lot of baguettes, or in Asia where they eat a lot of rice, they don't have the the incidence of obesity that we do in this country. And yet here we are blaming carbs for the fact that we're so overweight. So carbs are not the enemy. What we do is we educate our clients how to eat the best carbs, and those are the ones with the most fiber, so that they can eat carbs without weight gain. 
You know, I notice that. I travel a lot around the world, and I think one of the things that always comes to my mind when I'm watching people in all the countries that you just mentioned um, is they are eating real food, and I guess that's what you're describing, and we don't eat real food, or we tend not to eat real food in this country, and as you say, eating it in boxes and processed food, and just not eating the real the real food, which yep. makes a difference. Sure. I mean, they call that the French paradox, right? Maybe you've heard of this, that yep. in France, you know, they eat more fat, they, they smoke, they drink, um, and yet they're, you know, they're healthier than we are as a nation. So, you know, I think the two factors that have really contributed to obesity in this country, number one, are our portion sizes. We just eat way, way, way too much. And I call this portion distortion because we've become so accustomed to these jumbo portions that we don't even recognize what a normal portion looks like. And if you dine out and you become accustomed to that large portion, now you're serving yourself that same portion at home. So we're just overeating. And then adding insult to injury, it's the kinds of foods we're eating. And the reliance on processed foods for convenience or for taste um, leads us to um, intake excess calories, but because there is no fiber in these foods, we're, we're hungry soon after eating them, so it leads to overeating throughout the day. You know, fiber adds bulk to foods without adding calories, which is why a high-fiber diet is great for dieting. Fiber swells in the stomach, and it slows down digestion, but it also boosts metabolism. All this combines to making losing weight healthier and easier. So when people say, well, how does it boost metabolism? I want you to picture your metabolism like a furnace. And think about a furnace when it starts to die down, and then you were to add a lump of coal, it flares up again. Well, remember I said earlier that fiber is indigestible? But your body doesn't know it when you're eating it. So what happens is your body attempts to break it down. And digestion is an involuntary bodily function that burns calories. And anything that causes your body to burn calories, we call this thermogenesis. So the understanding on the clinical um, level, and please tell me if I'm getting too highbrow, but I hope everyone can follow me, is that when you eat fiber, it causes your body to start burning calories as it attempts to break it down, but fiber has no calories. So it has a negative net thermic effect. So the more fiber you eat, the more calories your body burns. So think about how exciting this is that you actually can eat something that is helping your body to lose weight. And then one more fascinating aspect of fiber is that Fiber absorbs fat and calories in the foods that you combine it with. So there was a study that showed that when women doubled their fiber intake from 12 to 24 grams of fiber per day, they naturally absorbed 96 calories less per day, almost 100 calories less. I didn't say they ate 100 calories less. I said their body malabsorbed 100 calories less per day, and that led to 10 pounds of weight loss in a year just by adding more fiber into their diet. What about you? Tell us a typical day. Just when what that you what do you eat, or maybe even a typical week? Sure, sure. Um, well, I certainly am the walking billboard for F Factor, and I do it one because, as I said, I want to represent my product, but. Like most women, I want to look and feel my best, and F-Factor is a solution that allows me to travel and dine out and manage my weight effortlessly. So we have a saying at F-Factor, which is fiber and protein at every meal makes losing weight no big deal. So fiber, um, we already covered, can come in the form of whole grain cereals, of fruits, of vegetables, um, well, protein, we recommend lean proteins. You know, we're not looking to create a diet that's high in fat, which would increase someone's risk for cardiovascular disease. But lean proteins are not just chicken and fish. It's also red meat. Um, it's lean cuts of veal, pork, um, veal. So it, our clients can eat steak. Our clients can have chicken. They could have seafood. Um, if you're 
they, if you're a vegan, we can focus on tofu and seitan, or if you're a vegetarian, um, but you eat dairy products or eggs, you can also use those as sources of protein. So there's a ton of variety. So what does a typical day in my life look like? Well, for breakfast, um, this morning I actually posted on my social media a traditional breakfast Monday through Friday when I'm in a rush getting three kids on the school bus and I have to get to the office. So I combine Greek yogurt, which has three times the protein of conventional yogurt, with a high-fiber cereal. This morning I had Kellogg's Bran Buds. That provided me with 13 grams of fiber and a bowl of berries. So blueberries, raspberries, those are the highest fiber berries. One cup of raspberries has eight grams of fiber. So combine my cereal, 13 grams of fiber, with my berries at 8 grams of fiber, that's 21 grams of fiber. Women should get 35 grams of fiber per day. So I just met half of my fiber needs before lunch. And that breakfast only has 220 calories, but will keep me feeling full all morning long. Okay, so that's breakfast. Now let's morph into lunch. What do you have for lunch? You go. I mean, you mentioned you get the three kids off to school. You have your breakfast. So then I'm with, I'm, I'm with clients from 9 to 6. I get this one-hour break for lunch. If I'm going to eat at my desk, I typically go to one of these salad bars, and I fill that bowl up with as many cruciferous high-fiber vegetables as possible. So I'll start off with a dark leafy green. Um, things like spinach and romaine will have more fiber than iceberg. But then really where the fiber comes from are ingredients such as broccoli, which has 5 grams of fiber, artichoke hearts, which have six grams of fiber, hearts of palm, which is three grams of fiber, um, odd cucumbers and, and, and carrots. On S-Factor, all vegetables are free foods. You could eat as many vegetables as you like. So I, I, I put every vegetable in and you can have beets and you can have tomatoes. I know a lot of people think in carrots that those are high in sugar. You can't eat them you know, while you're trying to manage your weight. That's inaccurate. Please eat them. They're filled with antioxidants and are low in calories. And then to the salad, I add a protein. It could be grilled shrimp. It could be grilled chicken. It could be um, some tofu. Um, it could be some grilled meat, some steak, but you put a protein, three to four ounces, into your salad, and then you get a dressing on the side, or you can use oil and vinegar and use that sparingly. Or um, maybe I'll have a soup, a high-fiber protein soup, such as a bean soup, a split pea, a, a, a lentil soup, um, and I could have that with some high-fiber crackers. I would say those are traditionally when I'm in a rush. But if say I went out for a luncheon, I could order any protein, a grilled piece of fish, um, with some vegetables and even a glass of wine. Tell me about grass-fed beef. I just started, I went to, uh, I guess I was in Whole Foods, and I, I never had, uh, I really never bought grass. I don't eat a lot of beef. but uh, So I thought, well, this would be a good question to ask you. What, is there a real difference between, you're talking about protein, grass-fed beef as opposed to just the regular beef? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm glad that you're bringing up beef because I, I believe you know many of your listeners might think that if they're going on a diet, if they're trying to lose weight, they shouldn't eat red meat. Um, there are many lean cuts of red meat. So I, and, and women especially um, need the iron, um, especially you know if they're still menstruating. So I, I always encourage women to try and eat red meat two or three times a week um, so that they don't become anemic and that they have um, enough iron. So the difference between grass-fed beef... Um, and grain-fed beef is just that. You know, the cows are being fed grass um, versus grains. And what they believe is that the grains um, are usually made with a base of soy or corn, and this, this um, carbohydrate causes more marbleization in the meat, um, which translates to it's more fatty. So grass-fed um, 
is, generally speaking, they eat mostly grass, um, and this produces a leaner cut of meat. Well, it tastes, you know, after a while, I think as one gets used to it, yes, it doesn't taste, it has a different kind of a taste, but uh, it does, and I, I think I could eat more of it, as you say, because it is important to eat beef at least, well, maybe in my case, twice a week, not necessarily three times a week. Um, kind of switching gears here, gluten-free diets, I mean, you say ditch them. I don't even know what they are exactly. Can you tell, I mean, <laughs> what, what? Right. Well, okay, I only say ditch them if, you do not have celiac or a gluten sensitivity. Um, I believe it's, I think, 2 or 3% of the population has celiac disease, um, and then a much larger percentage has a gluten sensitivity. But for those reasons, um, which are clinical reasons, those are the, that's the only time I could recommend that someone cut out gluten from their diet. Um, for those who are doing gluten-free as an attempt to lose weight, um, I don't recommend it. And it's for a few reasons. Number one, gluten is found in so many delicious foods, including pasta and bread. I mean, can you imagine going to Paris and not eating a croissant or going to Italy and not having pasta? So why would you encourage someone to embrace a gluten-free lifestyle for weight loss when it's going to preclude, preclude them from having, you know, a quality of life filled with delicious foods? But when we really take a look at some of the complications of a gluten-free diet, most gluten-free products contain more sodium, more fat and more calories than their conventional counterparts because when you remove the gluten, you're removing the taste. So gluten-free pretzels have more fat and calories than conventional pretzels, you know, with gluten. Um, and without fiber, what happens is a lot of patients on gluten-free diets complain of chronic constipation. So they're gaining weight and they're becoming constipated. I mean, I, I don't see any anything um, desirable about either of those symptoms. Now, there are people that go gluten-free because if what they're going to do is rather than replace traditional items um, with gluten-free rice, they'll just cut out carbs completely. So I think a lot of people are using gluten-free as, an, as, as a way of saying that they don't eat carbs, but it sounds more clinical, so then people don't question them. But if you're gluten-free and someone offers you cake, you say, oh, I'm gluten-free, or pasta, or bread, or foods that people associate with weight gain. And when you go to the grocery store, I see more and more advertising the marketing for gluten-free products. Oh, it's a billion-dollar industry. Yeah. I mean, the market is very quick to respond to trends. Um, so we've seen thousands of gluten-free products introduced to the marketplace, and some are healthy, um, and many are not. It's the same thing with organic. You know, just because a food is organic does not make it a health food. Organic simply means that it is um, that the ingredients do not contain any insecticides, pesticides, or chemical fertilizers. But you know, you you can't rationalize an organic potato chip or an organic chocolate chip cookie. And just because it's organic doesn't mean that it's going to support weight management. So I tell people it's important to be clear on what your motivation is when you adopt any, you know, lifestyle change. So if you're going gluten-free, why are you going gluten-free? I want a client to be able to explain it to me. And if they're saying I'm doing it for weight loss, F-factor is, is a much healthier solution because on a gluten-free diet, you're going to have almost no fiber, and fiber is correlated with lowering cholesterol, managing your sugars, um, you know, pulling toxins out of the body, reducing the risk for colon and breast cancer, and causing weight loss without hunger. So to adopt a way of eating gluten-free just to lose weight, um, it's illogical. But, of course, if someone has celiac or if they have a gluten sensitivity, then I'm more than happy to work with them. And we have a gluten-free version of F-Factor, but we make sure that we add in as many gluten-free, high-fiber foods as possible so the clients don't gain weight and don't become constipated. All right, well, you mentioned organic. 
Now, when you, uh, this is another thing that I see in the labeling, natural is versus organic. What's the difference? Because uh, you know, now uh, you know, talk about marketing and a billion dollar industry or whatever, you see all products labeled natural. What does that mean? Um, so natural is, um, it's a fuzzy word to define um, because natural pretty much just means that the ingredients are found in nature versus organic um, is a very specific definition by the federal government. Something that is organic, um, it means that the ingredients have, have been grown without any chemical insecticides, pesticides, or fertilizers. Um, so an apple is all natural, but doesn't necessarily mean if it was organic if it was sprayed with a pesticide. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense because I, somebody, I, very often people ask what's the distinction and they, they sort of equate the two. Organic is the same as natural, but uh, obviously it's not. I mean, we only no, have or, a natural just means it's, it exists in nature. Um, so many foods exist in nature, whether it's um, eggs or fruits or vegetables, but they may not have been grown organically. One last question, because we do have a couple minutes left, but what about, I mean, you're talking about people uh, not necessarily wanting to lose weight or maintain their weight in a healthy way, but actually uh, going on the F-factor diet to lower cholesterol or control diabetes. I mean, I, do some, I mean, your clients actually will come to you or referral from doctors or, um, for that specific reason. Yes, um, and I take so much pride in that because, as I said, there are so many diets out there, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Atkins, and they focus on weight loss alone, and I'm not minimizing how important it is to lose weight, but if you're going to lose weight, don't you want to do it um, with a program that's also going to lower your cholesterol so you can get off of a statin drug or lower, you know, manage your sugar so you don't become diabetic? There's no reason to do one without the other. You know, you might as well maximize the results of all your efforts and get the greatest return on your investment. So all our clients present with the blood workup, and after three to six months, we make them repeat the blood workup, and it is staggering the changes um, in their health status. So fiber has been shown, and a factor diet after 15 years of you know, proven clinical experience, it lowers your cholesterol, it controls your serum glucose levels, reducing your risk for diabetes, um, which also then um, results in better blood sugar control and better energy throughout the day. And because you will have these wonderful bowel movements, it completely eradicates any chronic constipation, but going to the bathroom and by evacuating with a form stool every day, it reduces your risk for colon cancer. So whenever you hear of a friend or a coworker doing some juice cleanse to detox, it's ridiculous. Fiber is nature's detox. Fiber is all natural. It does not get digested. It binds with toxins, cholesterol, estrogen, and ushers it out of the body while also ushering out unnecessary fat and calories. So fiber really is the miracle carb. It's this amazing nutrient that, that as I said, anyone can afford. It's found in most foods. Go get more of it. You know, at F-Factor, you can go to the website, ffactor.com, or get the book on Amazon. We have um, weeks of eating programs. We also show you how to dine out, breakfast, lunch, snack, and dinner, um, and all different kinds of cuisines. This really is a program that allows our clients to travel, dine out, be social, um, feel full, improve their health without compromising their quality of life. It is the most liberating approach to weight loss. 
Well, Tanya, Tanya Zuckerbrot, thanks so much for being on the show. I mean, so much good information. Um, I won't repeat everything you said, but you can buy the book on Amazon.com and go to the website. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate all the smart questions you asked. Um, I think, you know, a lot of this information um, really confuses people, so... I, uh, you're, you know, your listeners are lucky to have someone as informed as you to clarify um, some myths out there. So uh, well, thank, thank you for you. giving me an opportunity to answer like your you questions as well. As well. Yeah, no, yeah, that's great. Your diet. Discover the secret to permanent weight loss. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Sherry Filippo. She's a nurse. Uh, she has a blog. Uh, and the title of her blog is Living and Dying with Metastatic Breast Cancer. Uh, Sherry, uh, she describes herself as uh, once a nurse and now a patient, and her blog is her story of living and dying with metastatic breast cancer. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sherry. Nice to be here. Hope I can be of some, of some help. I think you definitely will be of help. Having read your, your blog and um, listening to you, uh, there are so many, I think, people out there that can benefit, obviously, from what you had to say. Um, I'm just going to give a little background. Um, on the eve of turning 50, 
you were diagnosed with bilateral invasive breast cancer and in the fall of 2010 underwent a double mastectomy, chemotherapy, and breast reconstruction. Less than two years later, uh, you were diagnosed with metastatic terminal breast cancer and underwent a second series of chemotherapy. And in the fall of 2014, the cancer returned, and uh, you underwent a third series of chemo. And in the spring of 2015, made the decision to stop all treatment, and in the summer of 2015, entered hospice. Uh, you were a nurse for 25 years, um, and you've written several papers, many papers on patient communication, the voice of the patient, and many others. Um, so, uh, so we have a lot to learn from you, both as a nurse and as a patient, and I understand. Uh, so uh, where do we begin? Uh, when you were first diagnosed, you were, what, 50 years old, right? Right. We were literally within 12 hours of jumping on an airplane and going and um, celebrating our, our my 50th birthday in San Francisco, one of my favorite places. And... Um, I am, as you will hear in magazines and, and, and newspaper articles, I'm one of the ones that never missed a mammogram. Uh, I dot all my I's, I cross all my T's, all those sorts of things that you're supposed to do. And while I had a, a little time before my trip to, uh, west for me, I, I went and had my um, annual pap smear and um, mammograms. And... Um, this is where my patient slipped into my nurse. I, I watched their faces and I realized, oh, something's not right. I don't know that you or others would have picked up on it. Maybe you would have. I, I don't know, but I knew I knew something was not going to be right. And uh, they took about a dozen. At that point, I think everybody would have known a dozen mammograms. That's not what any woman goes in and gets. And uh, the radiologist came back to me and said, uh, we're seeing a couple of things we really would like to test further. And I said, I've had the uh, biopsies before. Let's just go ahead and do it. And so we continued on into the procedure room and had them done. And that was a Friday. And she said, we'll call you with the results on Monday. And it was interesting that the nurses, as I left, all hugged me. I, at that point, I had been in nursing for a long, long time, didn't necessarily know these women, but, but the extra hug I got made me think that really, really, truly something wasn't right. So I drove home and um, found my husband and said, um, I think we're going to have some bad news. And he sort of says, I, my, my, my glass is half empty, but I said, no, I really, really think this is not going to be good. And um, that Monday morning, I got a call as I was putting my last piece of whatever it was in my luggage. And um, she said, Sherry, I'm really sorry to tell you, but you've got invasive uh, ductal carcinoma in both of your breasts. So what that means is not, not only did I have breast cancer, but it had already left uh, the site. You would hear the word in situ, meaning it was inside um, and had not burst forth to begin traveling. Um, mine was not in a distant location, which is considered metastatic or terminal, but it was invasive, which meant it had already begun to creep out of my um, 
breast tissue and had begun thinking about taking a journey around my body. When um, they told you, Sherry, when they told you that, uh, and being, obviously, I, I keep reiterating, but a nurse, did you say, and, mm-hmm. and uh, as you describe yourself, and, uh, you know, you were someone who always had mammograms, did you think, well, why did it get to this point? I mean, I've been going, I've been getting my mammograms, being vigilant, doing what I'm supposed to do. Supposed to be doing. That even as a nurse for 20-some-odd years, I didn't understand all the facts, the basic facts behind breast cancer. And one of those was, it doesn't matter if it's called early or not, that you, five to 10 to 15 years later, someone that had early detection of breast cancer can still look up and have it move and it become terminal. So I have a hard time personally with all the women that wear all the pink in October and and, and proclaiming a self-proclaimed healing when they've just finished their uh, therapy. Um, and I want to say, God bless you. I hope it's true. But if we were friends and you weren't in a pink tutu running around the city of wherever, I, you and I could sit down and I have a cup of coffee and let me tell you how that's not accurate. I think it gives women a sense of I am in control, but we aren't in control of this disease. And um, it decides whether it's going to travel or not. And I really thought, because I was vigilant, I was a nurse, I did self-breast exams, I got my mammograms, that there was no way that this disease was going to touch me. And that's just, that's just a myth, an absolute myth. You know, I've always um, felt that way. You know, I have to respond to what you're saying, but I never, I always, in, in some ways, afraid to verbalize that. Because, uh, as you say, women dancing in their tutus and everything turning pink, and I'm thinking, I, I just don't. There's something about this that's not believable. It seems as if it's more of a, a marketing tool to uh, sometimes even buy products. So um, hearing this from you kind of validates my own feelings and probably many others. I know you had questioned, and I've had Joan London on my show a couple times in the past, and I know you had disagreed with her. I, I was reading your in your blog um, uh, because that, you know, we have control and all we, we have to be vigilant and, and, and then if we are, then we won't get breast cancer or it won't be right. so bad and, when we do get it. And one of the words she used was prevention. We need to do all the good things and she cited, you know, have an exercise program, go to your doctor every year, you know, eat well. Well, none of those things you would say, Jim, are you crazy? No, those are perfectly wonderful things to do. Will it stop cancer if the cancer wants to travel? It will not. And that's the, the misinformation. And though she comes from no place of malice at all, it's just such a hard concept to believe that 20 to 30 people, percent of all people diagnosed with early stage disease will turn terminal. That's me. Mine was early stage. It was called. It was stage one. I'm supposed to have a 93% cure rate. Um, I'm in hospice. I I have a wheelchair. I don't get out much without assistive devices. And I did everything right. And I don't want to scare your audience. I just want people to think about some things that maybe 
the TVs and the, and the um, entertainment magazines and other things that we read really don't balance. Um, because it's, it's a very insidious disease. Um, the big places it travels, and people may know this, but um, it will travel. If it's going to travel, it's going to travel to the brain, to the lung, to the liver, and to the bone. Mine is in my liver. Um, it is not, to my knowledge, I traveled anywhere else, but um, it doesn't have to. Um, we know that the liver is the biggest organ. It's the filtration organ. It's the organ that helps us metabolize carbohydrates and um, proteins. It is just a magnificently important uh, organ, and it's what's going to take uh, what's going to take me down. Just to be clear, though, I don't have liver cancer. If you did a biopsy of my liver, you would find breast cancer cells in my liver. And there is that difference. Liver cancer is cancer that originates in the liver, but your cancer originated in your breast and traveled to your liver. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. If it traveled to my lung, I don't have lung cancer. I have breast cancer that has traveled to my lung. That was a hard thing for my mom, Uh, never mind the the, just the diagnosis of itself. And when she would go out and she would be telling her friends and whatnot about Sherry had breast cancer and now she's got lung cancer. And I was have to pull her aside and go, Mama, no, let's get to this one more time. And she says, it's really hard to grasp. And I said, no, Mom, I think it's hard for the world to grasp. The other thing is she said, just as a layperson, she said, Sherry, I, did, I couldn't understand well, for a while, when you said, if it doesn't travel outside of your breast, it can't kill you. And I said, it's true. It's got to go. It's got to move out of your breasts and start taking a, a journey. And it will hit one of those spots and begin to proliferate. And that's when it's considered terminal. So the ladies that have had some lumpectomies out there... Um, I don't know who they are, but there are ladies out there with lumpectomies who will never have to worry another day because it was never going to uh, leap out and, and start taking a journey. Uh, there are those who have had them this week, and uh, they don't know it, and I don't know it, but they're going to be the ones that draw the odds of it becoming um, metastatic um, 5, 10, 15 years out. Nobody knows. Sherry, you talk about um, in, in the beginning, because we're talking about your journey, and you, you say in your blog that a, a patient starts out being able to be in charge of the symptoms. And, feel, and, uh-huh. and Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because then that changes in the course of the illness. And um, yeah. It really does. The median survival rate, not, not the average, but the median survival rate, as you've been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, is three years. Well, I had my third year anniversary at Thanksgiving. And um, at that point, um, I couldn't say I was any pain. I just knew my, my numbers, and I knew that I had been given three great years. I felt like I was able to take an ibuprofen when I needed it. But nothing more than that. If I was tired, I would lie down on the couch. But I was I was controlling at that point. When we finished all of our Christmas holidays, which was in North Carolina and in Philly, um, 
something happened. I felt like the dam broke. And I need to apologize to your listeners. Um, I'm on morphine, and morphine, a side effect, makes your voice sound like a frog. So I haven't, I haven't just rolled out of bed, but this is a side effect. If you're hearing a gravelly voice, I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, but after Christmas, I started getting a little bit of pain around my liver, just a little bit. I'm thinking, well, oh dear. And since Christmas, it has gone from what I would say a crisp, uh, quarter size to pretty much wrapping around my abdomen. And the progress, just from you help, when you think how fast Thanksgiving and how fast Christmas comes, to think that I was having no real pain up to I'm taking morphine, long-acting morphine twice a day, um, amazed me. And, and my hospice nurse comes every couple of weeks and we sit down and I get to moan and groan and whine and whatnot. And, I'll go, and I said, what, what's going on with this? And she said, Sherry, you are so classic of a hospice patient. So typically, a hospice patient, if they think it's the last of something that they're going to do, like maybe this is your last Christmas, or maybe you've got a wedding, one of your children's getting married six months down the road, Patients like you, she said, continue to hold it in and run that race and get it done, whatever it is. And then once it is over and it's been successful and you take that first big, long, deep breath, it's when your body and your mind and your soul falls apart. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She says, this is far more indicative for us, than a lab sheet of your lab values, as far as where you are, where you are on that journal and on that on that um, highway, the timeline of your disease progress. And looking back, I can see it. I had lots of family, lots of family that traveled in because they were worried about next year. And um, as soon as I got back home, my body physically fell apart. So. Not only that, now I'm beginning to itch, which is also um, with the breakdown of blood cells in the liver, not an uncommon thing. And I have not been itching before, but it is just like the worst intermittent poison ivy that you can almost have. And um, this week I've started having uh, my legs and arms are jerking um, involuntarily. And I called her and I said, are we on too many meds? I can hardly close my kitchen cabinet. I don't take so many. She said, no, actually, Sherry, this is another. This is your muscles breaking down because I don't have much of an appetite. I don't eat but about once a day. And she said, it's your muscles just calling it quits. So a part of me sounds like I'm crazy because it fascinates me, but that's the nurse in me that's just, I was an OR nurse. I didn't get to see these sorts of things. I was good with, a, you know, a scalpel and hand and suture and, you know, all that surgical world, but I never knew the world of hospice. So it's like this whole unveiling of a whole sisterhood, my colleagues, that I never knew. So um, I'm learning just as much as the people beside me. Um, 
what I did have about two years ago was a social worker that I went to after a colleague of mine died suddenly, and I couldn't get I couldn't get a hold of myself. And she says it's because you see yourself dying. I thought, of course, I have to pay you to tell me the obvious. But we had a great session, and at the end, she said to me, "I think you need to start a blog." And I said, Laura, I would, but I don't even know what one is. She says, well, I'm sure there are people out there that can help you. So I started digging around about two years ago and found a designer and found out all those things that these millennials know from birth and started a way to just write every day the journey that I'm going through with my son. He's 24. With my husband, we're fairly newly married. Um, the demise and the crashing of my job, which I can no longer work out time, out of the home. I can't work full time. And then whatever else comes into my mind, it's been really therapeutic for me. And if there are any listeners out there that are considering it, I would say it's a fabulous way. If you don't have a lot of energy, but you still got a lot to say, you can sit at your laptop and you can uh, type it out and get it out to the world. And it's been one of the greatest things I've done for me. I'm hearing back now that um, I'm teaching a lot of people things that they just didn't know, the same that I didn't know when I first started. Yeah, I think so many people have the opportunity, obviously, to connect to you. It's therapeutic, as you say, for you, but I think it's therapeutic for, you know, hundreds or who knows how many people are reading your blog, you know, um, for all of them and families. I think it's really helpful, too, you know, as I was reading this, um, not just for you as the patient, but also for families and friends. I mean, as a social worker and as a friend of, unfortunately, many of my friends who have had or do have uh, breast cancer. Um, right. <clears throat> yeah. Because we, do, how do you talk, you know, the question, and you, I'm sure you've, talked about this, but people, people, well, I don't know what to say or how should they talk to someone and um, if you're visiting somebody in hospice, all of those kinds of things. And you want to be uh-huh. close and you want to connect, but you feel you're not going to say the right thing. Right. I did initially um, lots of educational sessions on the blog about what does triple negative breast cancer mean? What do you, what do you mean men get breast cancer? Uh, African American women have different um, issues with their breast cancer and things like the 10 worst things that you can say to someone with breast cancer. So I did a lot of those things that I thought if people were just um, searching around would hit on that blog, you know, what to say, what not to say. Um, And it has helped people because what an awkward place to be and you're looking at a friend who this is my, my, my personal pet peeve, and it's just my personal pet peeve. I don't want people to tell me I look great. Um, I have a girlfriend that has metastatic breast disease, and she does. So we're, it's funny. We like to compare. She wants to be told that she looks good. I want to be told, <laughs> I guess, you look like a rat. I don't know what <laughs> I want them to tell me, but that to me is just like, no, I cannot possibly look good. I know what I used to look like. This is not it. But, um, you know, it, it, those lists at least give you talking points. And if you know people a little better than just somebody you pass at church or pass along the sidewalk, you'll know which of those sentences you can probably 
drop on them without making it too irritable. But the, but the good things I've heard have come back. I made a mistake. I said thus and so. But I was able to go back and apologize after reading your blog, and all was forgiven, and we've now started on a new foot. So, And I have, you know, I, I hate to interrupt you, but we are coming down to the bottom or the end of the hour. So I had one of my <clears throat> listeners just uh, uh, texted me and said, wanted to know, like, what your plan, I mean, if you can do it in two minutes, but, like, what are your plans now as, you know, in hospice and your plans for uh, what you're going to do at the end or or when you realize that it is the end? Um, well, um, in the last week, I think we have begun discussing that I am at nearing the end, the end, the end, um, because my all of my family is in North Carolina. Um my mother and I have been talking about doing end-of-life care in her home with my dad. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that is what we're thinking we were going to do. We, we meaning my husband and, and my mom and dad, we were all going to decide. Long story short, we thought it was going to be later in the spring based on some of the signs I've shown this week. Um, I think it's probably going to be within the next month that I would move into her home and probably have two or three, four more months to live. But I consider that at the end for people I need to see and things I need to get done. Well, but I won't go into a hospital. It won't be in hospital. Maybe that's why I should say it will be in-home hospice. It will be in-home hospice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an honor to talk to you today. And I can, obviously I, you're going to, I hope, continue with your blog and, um, just being on the show and talking to people and, you know, just sh- sharing, as you say, living and dying with metastatic breast cancer and people should go and read your blog. Um, uh, we really appreciate you sharing that. You're a very special person, and, and we really do thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for your invitation. Uh, I love being here, and, and this is my, my end-of-life goal is just to get people to better understand this very, very crazy disease. So thank well, you for the opportunity. It. You've accomplished it and you've accomplished it well. So thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to the Catherine Zox show on voiceamericavariety.com. Uh, hope you had, uh, do have a great week and we'll see you next Monday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.